Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Michael J. New on whether or not Democratic presidencies bring down the abortion rate or not, which is a claim many have been making. That's coming right up. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to my friend Michael J. New. He is a visiting assistant professor of political science and social research at the Catholic University of America. He's an associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, and he's also a fellow at the Witherspoon Institute at Princeton, New Jersey. He has a PhD in political science and a master's degree in statistics from Stanford University. He has served as a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard MIT Data Center and he is a lecturer at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. His articles have appeared in various peer-reviewed journals, three of which have examined the impact of state-level abortion legislation. Additionally, Dr. New is a pro-life activist. He's not only just an academic and a professor, although he's one of the best ones the pro-life movement has. He is regularly outside Planned Parenthood clinics in Washington, D.C., reaching out to women, offering them help, letting them know that he will do whatever he can. I've known Dr. New for years. Years, and honestly, you will have a very, very difficult time finding a better man, a better pro-lifer. This is somebody who is both in the ivory tower and on the street in front of the abortion clinic. And there's not too many people who fill both of those categories. So I invited Michael New on to talk about the claims that have been made recently by people who want to vote for Joe Biden uh, or people who essentially want to claim that a Democratic presidency would be no big deal by stating that Democratic presidents bring down the abortion rate. Michael New has done a ton of research on this, and so I asked him on to discuss those claims and to really unpack for us what the impact of Democratic presidents on the abortion rate are, and essentially what Democratic presidencies mean for vulnerable human beings. This is that conversation. All right, Dr. New, uh, the first question I have for you is we've been seeing a lot of news over the last few weeks uh, as we get closer to this election um, by both Democrats uh, as well as uh, uh, pro-lifers who oppose Trump and want to somehow excuse a vote for Biden. I want to distinguish this between the never Trumpers who don't want to vote for Trump or Biden. Uh, You may have seen that there's a group called Pro-Life Evangelicals for Trump. You had America Magazine publish this essay saying the abortion rate goes down during uh, Democratic presidencies. And you even had David French, uh, who will not be voting for Biden, to be clear, but he actually noted in an essay that uh, the abortion rate goes down during during Democratic presidencies. And obviously, if it's true that the abortion rate actually goes down during the tenure of Democratic presidents, that bears a, a, a much closer look on behalf of pro-lifers, because we're all about saving the largest amount of lives possible. But you've taken a really close look at this data. And so how would you respond on to the claim that Democratic presidents result in lower abortion rates? Well, basically what I would tell people is that we've seen a consistent, long-term, durable decline in the U.S. abortion rate since 1980. Uh, that since 1980, the U.S. abortion rate has fallen just about every year. It's fallen during economic expansions. It's fallen during recessions. It's fallen during Republican presidencies. And yes, it has fallen during Democratic presidencies. So uh, that's kind of my thumbnail response to it. You know, getting into the details of some of these memes I see circling around the internet, a lot of them I think are misleading for about three reasons. I mean, you do have some memes which claim that there are much larger declines during Democratic presidential administrations 
than during Republican presidential administrations. But again, I think that's misleading for the following three reasons. First off, uh, these memes typically include or exclude the fact that in the 1970s or 1976, we elected a president who was a Democrat named Jimmy Carter, and the right. abortion rate went up under his administration. Uh, those memes never seem to include that. Secondly, a lot of these memes include data from the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, that's where they get their abortion data from. Uh, abortion report requirements in the United States are very weak. And California quit reporting data to the CDC back in 1997. So when you compare data from 1992 that has abortions from California in it, when you look at data from 2000, California is no longer in the data set. So that exaggerates the decline that happened during the Clinton administration. Uh, another problem, kind of the third problem with these memes, is some of them look at the total number of abortions. I think that can be a bit misleading because that can be impacted by the population of women of childbearing age. Uh, for instance, during the Reagan years, uh, the abortion rate went down, but the number of abortions went up because there were more women aged 15 to 44 in 1989 than there were in 1981. So even though the abortion rate went down, uh, numbers, overall numbers went up uh, because you simply had more women of childbearing age. So that's, I think, why some of these specific memes I see circling around the internet are, are misleading. Broadly speaking, again, we've seen a 50% decline in the U.S. abortion rate since 1980. An important reason for this decline is because a higher percentage of unintended pregnancies are being carried to term. Uh, 1981, 54% of unintended pregnancies were aborted. This data comes from Guttmacher, which is not sympathetic to the pro-life movement. By 2011, 42% uh, of unintended pregnancies were aborted. And we have some preliminary research indicating that figure may even be lower uh, in the later part of that decade. So I always tell pro-life audiences the statistic because if a higher percentage of unintended pregnancies are being carried to term, it's because pro-life efforts are successful. Uh, it's not that unintended pregnancies aren't happening, it's when they do happen, women are choosing life. So we're either changing hearts and minds, we're helping women through our pregnancy help centers, or we're passing protective pro-life laws. So all of that kind of flows back to the activities of, of pro-lifers. And kind of getting back to some of the specifics about some of the declines in, during the, in abortion during the Democratic presidential administrations, uh, I think it's also important that your listeners know that I think what happens at the state level is actually a lot more important what happens at the federal level. Mm. And during both the Clinton and Obama years, you saw Republicans make big gains in the state legislature in both those administrations. In uh, 1994, Republicans won chambers of the state legislature in many states. That was during the Clinton years. In 2010, Republicans made big gains in the state legislature. That makes it much, much easier to pass these protective pro-life laws or Republicans win these legislative chambers. And again, a lot of these laws are upheld partly because Republicans did a good job uh, appointing good people to the judiciary. So sometimes, you know, when it comes to uh, pro-life policy, we have to think long-term. You know, looking at what happens in a presidential administration can be misleading. Sometimes, you know, a president who appoints good judges, you're not going to see the fruits of that until years down the road when he starts upholding good laws. So these analyses that kind of look at abortion rate declines or individual presidencies are just for the reasons I've described are very misleading. You know, we've seen a long-term decline in the U.S. abortion rate. It's largely because pro-lifers have been effective in terms of educational service and legislative efforts. And I think we have plenty of good reasons to, to stay the course. So uh, I'm going to spitball a few questions at you that uh, that a, a liberal voter or a Democrat or even somebody who just really wants an excuse for Joe Biden might fire at you. So the first one would be that uh, a lot of, 
the the rate of sexual activity among minors has been going down fairly steadily as well. And a Democrat would say, well, that's because of progressive sex education, the sort of sex education that 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 you and I would oppose. And so actually progressive sex education reduces the abortion rate and should be seen as one of the key responses uh, to reducing the abortion rate. And they would even point at this as, well, this is common ground and we should get together on this. What would your response to that be? I mean, I find it kind of puzzling that they someone would make that argument because essentially we've seen a fairly durable decline in teen sexual activity since the late 80s, early 90s. And data from both the National Survey of Family Growth and the Youth Risk Behavior Survey shows a steady decline in teen sexual activity. These sex education courses uh, that our opponents tout and encourage people to pursue don't encourage chastity. You know, they don't really... Um, offer, they don't really, you know, discourage people from engaging in sexual activity. So I think it's kind of odd that they would claim that a sex education class that doesn't discourage sexual activity is responsible for declines in sexual activity. And also I'll just say that a lot of the uh, teen pregnancy prevention programs and sex education curriculum that our opponents talk about just don't have a good track record. Uh, I mean, the Obama administration, uh, they had a grant program called the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program. they gave grants out to various schools, and the sort of grants they gave were for programs that kind of encourage contraception use. And their own Department of Health and Human Studies evaluated these programs, and they concluded that a vast, vast majority were not effective at lowering teen pregnancy rates. I mean, there was some evidence that students who went to these programs knew more about sexually transmitted diseases, uh, but there was really no or very little evidence that uh, these programs actually succeeded in what they're supposed to do, getting teen pregnancy rates down. So again, I think that um, if anything, we've seen kind of more of an interest in absence-based education. Um, Obviously the effects of some of these specific programs are disputed, but I do think that people are more aware of teen pregnancy as a policy issue. I think there are efforts to discourage teenagers from engaging in premarital sexual activity. We've seen a durable decline in teen sexual activity since the late 80s, early 90s. And I don't see any evidence that's being caused by these quote unquote progressive uh, sex ed curriculum that we talk about or hear about. So another uh, argument in that vein that that you hear often, in fact, we're seeing it right now, right? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is saying things like, you know, we need to have comprehensive contraception and birth control. And, you know, you, you're outside Planned Parenthood all the time. You know that, that we're on the streets doing pro-life activism all the time as well. And, and, and one of the most common arguments we'll get on campus or even just talking with members of the public is, well, if you oppose abortion, therefore you must support contraception as a means to ending abortion. Is contraception or birth control a valid abortion-reducing strategy, or is it in fact counterproductive? I would say in most cases, it's counterproductive. Uh, there's several reasons for this. I mean, first, there's just regardless of what one thinks kind of theologically or philosophically about contraception, I just think the contraception programs have a very poor track record, and I'll explain why. First of all, again, Guttmacher, which up until uh, 2006 or 2007 was Planned Parenthood's research arm, they themselves admit that about half the women seeking abortions were using contraception the month they got pregnant. So contraception has a failure rate and a pretty significant failure rate at that. That's one thing. Secondly, uh, Guttmacher, again, has actually done research on sexually active women who are not using contraception. And they ask why. And the responses that women typically give are either they want to show trust in a partner or they're just willing to run the risk of getting pregnant. A relatively small percentage, maybe 12%, say high cost 
or lack of availability is why they are not using contraception. And keep in mind, there are already programs out there to subsidize contraception for low-income women. So it's not clear that putting more money into these programs is going to really do all that much good. I'll also say that there's also not a clear correlation between increases in contraception use and decreases in the unintended pregnancy rate. That in the United States, we have seen increases in contraception use since the early 80s. Uh, data from the Center for Disease Control shows that. But since that time, we've not seen a consistent decline in the unintended pregnancy rate. We've seen actually fluctuations. According to Guttmacher's latest data, the unintended pregnancy rate actually increased between 2001 and 2008. So kind of for those you know, reasons, you know, I really don't think that investing in contraception is a good strategy. In fact, I think it's going to probably do more and more harm than good. And I also just think the contraceptive mentality leads to more abortions. If you're encouraging people to use contraception, you're basically saying that you're separating kind of sex from procreation. And when you know a child is conceived, uh, the natural inclination then is to turn to an abortion. So I think, again, delinking sex from procreation, that mentality is only going to lead to more abortions, uh, not fewer. Now, one of the ones that's probably the toughest, because I think that common ground could potentially exist, especially as you see these new coalitions forming in the wake of, uh, of, of Trump being the nominee in 2016, etc., is that Democrats will claim that, that social welfare programs could reduce the abortion rate. And now in certain countries, that has been the case. Uh, in certain countries, um, specifically addressing economic circumstances, especially among the target audience of women who don't particularly want an abortion but feel economically driven towards it, that they have limited success in those ways. I know, for example, that has been the case for Israel. And then you have countries like Hungary that have uh, programs that couldn't be called social wel- welfare programs per se because it's essentially just a, an elaborate system of, uh, of incentives de- uh, designed to encourage marriage, to encourage procreation, and to discourage abortion. But what would you say uh, to somebody who says, well, social welfare programs are the answer to abortion, and that's why uh, the, uh, the claim that abortion goes down during Democratic presidencies rings true? Well, let's say a couple of things first off. It's really not clear that we've seen, you know, big changes in, you know, social welfare programs during some of these Democratic presidential administrations. I mean, President Clinton signed a welfare reform bill in 1996 that actually made welfare, quote unquote, more conservative. Uh, That actually made it easier uh, for caseworkers to take away benefits from people who weren't going to work or weren't involved in a job training program or weren't going to school. So, and keep in mind, even if people do want to say that Clinton welfare reform program was a change in social policy that was signed in 1996, it probably didn't really take effect till 97 or even 1998 in some cases. So there's not really a lot of years in the 1990s where uh, that really social welfare program might have had any real impact on on abortion rates. Uh, Broadly speaking, I think what's happening in Hungary is very interesting. You know, they're really they're doing several things versus, you know, educational campaigns where they really do encourage women to carry pregnancies a term. Uh, they are offering a lot more benefits to families uh, who have children. Uh, they are, I think, you know, offering a lot more in the way of maternal benefits. Uh, I also think Romania, I've seen some research coming out of there. Uh, they've expanded their maternity leave policies. I think there's some evidence there that low-income women are now more likely to carry pregnancies a term as a result. So I think that, you know, what's happening is interesting and uh, pro-lifers should uh, look at this carefully. But at the same time, it's not a substitute for passing pro-life laws. Here in the United States, you know, we have research um, looking at variation in welfare benefits across states. There's no real evidence that I've seen that expanding the current U.S. welfare programs or being more generous with benefits has any real impact on, on the abortion rate. Um, you know, again, if something, you know, it's important 
you know, we think abortion is wrong uh, because we think, you know, unborn children are precious and worthy of legal protection and should be protected. And if, you know, something is wrong, if something's immoral, if something's illegal, uh, you need to take legislation to stop that activity. Uh, trying to make it less necessary, you know, might be a good intermediate step. Uh, but if something's wrong, you know, again, we didn't stop slavery by making it less necessary. We didn't stop segregation by making it less necessary. We've never stopped any human rights abuse really that way. We've had to make the moral case that it's wrong and put legislation in place to protect unborn children. So we should be interested in public policies that might help women and might reduce the instance of abortion, but we shouldn't really take our eye off the long-term goal of protecting all unborn children, uh, regardless of their conception and regardless of where they are in terms of their field development. So uh, before we move on to a, a secondary discussion I want to have here, um, what pro-life laws do you see as being the most successful based on your research? Because I know a lot of this has been published in the National Review. I know that your work has been used by a lot of policymakers to prove that pro-life laws are actually effective at saving at saving lives, which is supposed to be the point of any pro-life legislation. So based on your research, which laws uh, have you seen to be really effective at reducing the abortion rate in tangible? terms. I think the most effective thing that we've done to get abortion numbers down is to get the federal government out of the business of funding abortion. I think that limits on Medicaid funding of elective abortions have been very effective. I think there is a very substantial body of research that backs that up. A lot of times when we deal with public policy uh, pertaining to sanctity of life issues, there's a lot of disagreement. But on the question of taxpayer funding for abortion, especially uh, covering abortion through the Medicaid program, there's a lot of consensus. Uh, pro-life researchers agree this has gotten abortion numbers down, and even researchers who are sympathetic to legal abortion agree this has gotten abortion numbers down. Uh, the Guttmacher Institute did a very comprehensive literature, literature review back in 2009. Uh, they found a very high percentage of studies. Again, they looked at studies in economics, political science, public health. A very high percentage of these studies found that limiting public funding of abortion lowered abortion rates. They critiqued the studies. They thought the studies were the best research design, found that when you... Uh, essentially quit covering abortion through Medicaid, a higher percentage of unintended pregnancies were in fact carried to term. So Guttmacher agrees. Sarah Reproductive Rights did an analysis back in 2010. They found the Hyde Amendment, uh, which places limits on the ability of the federal government to fund elective abortions through Medicaid. They found the Hyde Amendment had stopped a million abortions since 1976. I did a study for the Charlotte Lotion suit in 2016. I updated my findings in 2020. I found the Hyde Amendment has saved over 2.4 million lives since 1976. So don't anybody tell you that pro-life political involvement has been for naught. There are 2.4 million women out there who've been spared a lifetime of regret because of the Hyde Amendment. And there's 2.4 million people walking around today who owe their lives to the Hyde Amendment. So I really do think that limiting taxpayer funding of abortion, especially limiting coverage of abortion through the Medicaid program, that's had a big impact. And there's a strong consensus on that. So you've kind of just uh, um, plowed your way into into the next subject I wanted to bring up, which was about the Hyde Amendment. Because the thing is, is that we have a lot of people uh, uh, that really focus on pro-life laws that that are much more morally appealing, right? Like the Hyde Amendment has a lot to do with with issues that people consider to be far more boring. Pro-lifers outside of of the political realm uh, and, and those who aren't intimately involved in the workings of the pro-life movement, many of them will have no idea what the Hyde Amendment is. And therefore, they won't actually look at, at Joe Biden's flip-flop on the Hyde Amendment, where he, he once supported it and now is promising 
to get rid of it. They won't see that as really a big deal. But if your analysis is correct, then Joe Biden's promise to repeal the Hyde Amendment is actually one of the most dangerous things about his platform for preborn children. What would you say to that? I would certainly agree. I mean, for a long time, the Democrat, most people in the Democratic Party, and this would include Joe Biden, thought that abortion should be legal, but by and large, not funded with federal taxpayer dollars. Uh, that has changed. Uh, every major Democratic presidential candidate uh, this past election cycle opposed the Hyde Amendment. Joe Biden had a long history supporting the Hyde Amendment, but last summer, as a presidential candidate, he flipped and he now opposes the Hyde Amendment. So Joe Biden not only thinks abortion should be legal, he thinks elective abortion should be paid for with taxpayer dollars. And this could have you know, a very significant impact. Again, I've done my own research on the impact of Hyde. I have found the Hyde Amendment saves about 60,000 lives a year. And we can quibble about the numbers, but there's a very strong consensus that the Hyde Amendment does stop abortions and does stop a significant number. And we've seen evidence in states uh, that have started to fund abortions with taxpayer dollars. Illinois, uh, tragically, I think in 2018, their governor signed a bill that required their state Medicaid program to cover abortions. Uh, there were thousands of more uh, taxpayer-funded abortions in Illinois that next year. So again, when abortions are free or very heavily subsidized, women tend to get abortions more often. So again, you know, this is uh, you know a very important issue. It's one that pro-lifers should know about, should care about. You know, I think that um, you know Biden's support or Biden's, I should say, uh, opposition for the Hyde Amendment. I think, you know, should just disqualify him from any serious pro-life support. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of other reasons why pro-life right, is not yeah, yeah. evidence in the short term. He's going to take some action that will increase the abortion rate. So for people who don't know exactly what the Hyde Amendment is, maybe first explain, like, what is the Hyde Amendment in layman's terms? And then um, when you say over two million babies saved, maybe break down for us how you got to that number. Because there's going to be people saying, well, how can you prove that this saved X number of lives. So maybe just to spell that out for us so people can really realize how big of an issue this actually is. All right, sure. So just some background. The Roe v. Wade decision was handed down in 1973. And I think pro-lifers at that era realized that overturning or reversing Roe in the short term probably was not going to be likely. But they thought there were some things they could do, at least in the short term, to protect some unborn children and to protect the conscious rights of taxpayers. And one thing that was never really discussed all that much in the kind of early debates over abortion, but became very salient in the 70s, was the question of Medicaid funding for abortion. Uh, that you had a number of state Medicaid programs uh, that were just getting billed for abortions, and these Medicaid programs uh, simply you know, viewed abortion wrongly as health care and were subsidizing abortion. And this came to the attention of pro-lifers. And they thought that one place we could make some incremental progress was at least getting the federal government out of the business of funding elective abortions through the Medicaid program. So you had a congressman from Illinois, Henry Hyde, who agreed to um, draft legislation that would make it clear that the federal government would no longer fund elective abortions through the state medic, through the medic, at least through the federal Medicaid program. Now, states have always been free to use their own money uh, to fund elective abortions, and tragically, about 16 or 17 states do, but except in a handful of unique scenarios involving rape, incest, uh, potentially life of the mother, uh, the federal government, by and large, is out of the business of funding elective abortion through the Medicaid program. So the HIMET was first passed in 1976. It actually was bipartisan. It received the support of 101 uh, House Democrats. So you at the time had a lot more Democrats who were uh, sympathetic to the pro-life movement, or at least felt that taxpayers should not be funding uh, abortion through their tax dollars. Uh, it was not surprisingly 
challenging court. Uh, it was a lot of back and forth in the 70s. It wasn't always consistently enforced due to the various legal challenges. The Supreme Court agreed to hear uh, a case involving the constitutionality of the Hyde Amendment in 1980. The case was called Harris v. McRae, and the Supreme Court agreed to uphold the Hyde Amendment. They agreed that abortion should be legal, but taxpayers weren't required to pay for it. So that was also was a first, it was a big political victory for the pro-life movement. It was also one of our first kind of legal and judicial victories. So the Hyde Amendment has been in effect since 1980. It's been passed every year since then. Again, it's kind of an annual rider to an appropriations bill that funds the Department of Labor and the Department of Health and Human Services. So since it's part of the budget, it has to be passed every year. It's been passed every year since 1980. It's been signed into law by both Republican and Democratic presidents, President Clinton and President Obama, both signed appropriations bills that include the Hyde Amendment. So it's something that at one point enjoyed uh, a lot of bipartisan support. Uh, but lately, you see President, I should say, Vice President Biden and a lot of Democrats in the House and Senate now flipping their position and opposing the Hyde Amendment. And again, if Joe Biden is elected president, uh, the Hyde Amendment could be in real peril. Now, how did I arrive at the 2.4 million figure? I looked at the research about taxpayer funding of abortion, and I looked at how that impacts abortion rates. And I looked at a variety of studies, and I threw out studies I thought were just weak methodologically that just didn't look at many years of data. I threw out some studies that were just kind of, I thought, outliers, frankly, that, you know, there were some studies that uh, had projected effects that were much greater or much lesser. So I threw out a few studies I viewed to be outliers. I found that, you know, whenever there are limits in place on tax-free funding of abortion, the abortion rate goes down by about 1.52 per every thousand of childbearing age. So I simply looked at, you know, the number of women in the various states where uh, Medicaid does not cover abortion and looked at what the abortion would look like if Medicaid were covering abortion and made the calculations. And that's how I arrived at the 2.4 million figure. And that's how I arrived at the 60,000 figure a year. Now, we can't always say for certain, you know, what would happen, the demographics of unintended pregnancies may change, but I do want to just reemphasize, uh, there is a very strong consensus that Heidemann has saved lives. Again, uh, the Center for Reproductive Rights back in 2010, they said the Heidemann saved us and stopped over a million abortions. And again, that was, you know, 10 years ago, Obviously, if they were to extend that analysis, their figure would be higher today. So, you know, regardless of what the exact figure is, it's a big number. You know, lives are being saved by the Hyde Amendment, and the election of Joe Biden would clearly put the Hyde Amendment in, in danger. So, uh, my final question would be: When you look at the uh, at the potential for a Joe Biden presidency, what do you think the impact on abortion rates could be? How big of a deal is this going to be? And then, if you look at how successful the pro life movement was on the state level. Uh, during the Obama presidency, do you think the pro-life movement should panic, or is there a lot we can do even under a Biden presidency? Well, I don't ever advocate panicking, but I do think that we should be concerned. You know, I do think that efforts to repeal the Hyde Amendment will have a lot of momentum if Joe Biden is elected president. Um, now, it's not a guarantee. If Republicans do maintain control of the Senate, uh, they could block efforts to repeal Hyde but it would be a political fight that we'd have to invest some time, effort, energy, and resources in. So I do think it would imperil the Hyde Amendment, and that would increase the abortion rate. And, um, you know, frankly, uh, to have a negative impact on public policy. Um, there's also another important concern is about court packing. You know, uh, we're right now going through the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. Vice President Biden has been very coy about what he packed the Supreme Court. Would he try to expand the number of judges? Obviously, the kind of judges he would nominate would be judges who would be very sympathetic to legal abortion.
These are judges that would certainly strike down pro-life laws. So you know, we don't know exactly what would happen or if he would pack the court, but he hasn't necessarily clearly come out and said he would not do that. That's something that we should be concerned about. That said, um, you know, we have seen during the past two Democratic presidential administrations, there's been kind of a backlash to them. You know, Republicans made big gains in 1994 uh, after two years of Bill Clinton. Republicans made big gains in 2010 after two years of Barack Obama. So I do think that you probably, if Joe Biden is elected, 2022 would probably shape up to be a pretty good year for Republican candidates, you know, running locally. Uh, I do think that uh, you may see some state legislative chambers flip uh, that may open up some different opportunities. Uh, so, but that said, uh, I think overall a Biden presidency would do much more harm than good. It would imperil the Hyde Amendment. His judicial nominees are people who almost certainly would not uphold pro-life laws. So again, we should never panic. You know, we should always do what we can to build a culture of life. There are things we can do and have done during Democratic presidential administrations, but in many respects, it makes things a, a lot more difficult. Well, Dr. New, thank you so much for taking the time to share all of your insights with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Michael J. New on what the stakes of the upcoming federal election are for preborn children and for the pro-life movement. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you're interested in getting this podcast regularly, please go to lifesitenews.com, go to the podcast tab and subscribe. We're on whatever platform that you use to get your podcasts. And we talk to somebody every single week on life, family, culture issues. But right now, especially on the pro-life movement, on the abortion issue, and what all this means as we head towards an election in November. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.